Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Derek Hook, and I'm a lecturer in social psychology here at the LSE. And it's a great pleasure to welcome you here tonight to the second of a series of public lectures uh, on the theme of psychoanalysis and society. These talks have been organized by Psychoanalysis at LSE. They're hosted by the Institute of Social Psychology, and they've been made possible by the generous support of the LSE's annual fund. The topic of tonight's talk is authority, enjoyment, and the spirits of capitalism. And we're very fortunate to have Professor Yanis Stavrakakis as our speaker. Yanis is an associate professor at the Aristotle University of Thessaloniki in Greece, and he's the author of two very influential texts, Lacan and the Political, published by Rutledge in 1999, and The Lacanian Left, published by Edinburgh University Press in 2007. Both of these books have been pivotal in asserting the importance of Lacanian theory for contemporary political thought and critical social analysis. Janus will speak for just under an hour, and then we'll take questions for approximately 30 minutes. I hope you'll join me in giving Janus a very warm welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, I would like to thank especially Derek Hook and the Institute for Social Psychology for the invitation. It is always a pleasure to return to the LSE, uh, to be at the LSE among so many good friends. Now, as we know, psychoanalysis, especially the Kenyan theory, is increasingly being acknowledged as an important resource in illuminating the institutional and organizational aspects of social life. Uh, and as an important tool in analyzing, uh, in cultural analysis and uh, critical social and political theory. The central question here was, is, and will, I think, remain the following. How is order sustained in a society? For example, how exactly is subjective identity made to comply with social norms? What I will try to do today tonight rather, is to sketch an answer to this question. And here, a psychoanalytically inspired approach highlights the mutual engagement between symbolic authority, fantasy, and enjoyment in securing the ethical hegemony of particular social, economic, and political structures. We are thus dealing with a variety of distinct, but, as we shall see, deeply interimplicated levels. On the one hand, with the level of the symbolic, with what Lacan calls the symbolic, of socio-semiotic construction. On the other hand, with the level of affective investment, of the mobilization of the passions, of what Lacan calls jouissance, enjoyment. Within this general context, psychoanalysis can account for obedience an attachment to particular identifications, for the depth and salience they can acquire in at least two ways. First, by focusing on the symbolic presuppositions of authority and power, on the irresistibility of the others, the big others, command, and the symbolic dependence of subjectivity. And second, by exploring the role of fantasy and enjoyment of the affective domain in sustaining them and in neutralizing resistance. After uh, providing a brief sketch of this argument in the broadest lines 
possible, I will then focus my attention on the relation between these different levels. The predominantly symbolic on the one hand, fantasy and enjoyment on the other. How are these distinct dimensions related in producing a salient identification? Apart from instances of straightforward and visible synergy, psychoanalytic research points to dialectics of mutual engagement that very often take the form of antithesis or even disidentification. The problematics of self-transgression and cultural intimacy, we will see what exactly these uh, words mean, signify in this perspective two parallel ways emanating from psychoanalysis and social anthropology uh, respectively, aiming to capture such a paradoxical modality of mutual engagement. A further hypothesis I will be uh, exploring tonight is that by highlighting this mutual engagement between these dimensions, such a focus can also prove helpful in understanding the ethical and cultural preconditions of consumption and production within capitalist societies. Hence, if the first aim of this talk is to argue that every successful identification involves an overdetermined and often paradoxical blend or articulation of form and force, symbolic weight and affective investment, the second aim is to examine under this light the spiritual genealogy of capitalism. And I am referring here to uh, Max Weber, of course, the spirit uh, of capitalism. In fact, within the milieu of capitalist societies, we can observe a whole synchronic and diachronic dialectic between distinct distributions of this type through the social matrices of prohibition and commanded enjoyment. We'll see what these words also mean and their association with different but deeply interconnected spirits of capitalism. So this is a broad overview of what I will be presenting tonight. Now, uh, moving beyond the, let's say, banal level of raw coercion, which, although not unimportant, cannot form the basis of sustainable hegemony, everyone seeking to understand how certain power structures manage to institute themselves as objects of long-term identification and how people get attached to them is sooner or later led to a variety of phenomena associated with what, since Etienne de la Boissy, is debated under the rubric of voluntary servitude. The central question here is simple. Why are people so willing and often enthusiastic or at least relieved to submit themselves to conditions of subordination, to the forces of hierarchical order? Why are they so keen to comply with the commands of authority, often irrespective of their content? What does Lacan have to offer here? Obviously the Oedipal structure implicit in the social ordering of our societies, the role of what Lacan calls the name of the father in structuring reality through the castrating imposition of the law, predisposes social subjects to accept and obey 
what seems to be emanating from the big other. From socially sedimented points of reference, invested with imaginary gloss of authority and presented as embodying and sustaining the symbolic order. Organizing, that is to say, both subjective and objective reality. This is the big other for Lacan. The command implicit in the name of the Father, the prohibition, and it is uh, uh, important to note that in, in French for Lacan, uh, non du père is also is both the name of the Father and the know of the Father, the prohibition emanating from the Father, uh, uh, cannot be reduced to the role of the biological Father, of course. It refers to the symbolic dependence of subjectivity, to any uh, historically variable normative principle instituting symbolic reality within a particular community. Humans are predominantly linguistic creatures. By submitting to the laws of language, every child becomes a subject in language it inhabits and is, at the same time, inhabited by language and hopes to gain an adequate representation through the world of words. In the early structural stage of his work, Lacan will highlight the symbolic dependence, the priority of the symbolic over the subject. Entering the symbolic, this is what socialization, after all, is about, transforms the biological individual into a social subject. And one can also have an Althusserian take here or a Foucauldian take. Suspension of the command is thus often experienced or imagined as threatening the consistency of symbolic reality itself to the extent that the law is what stands at the foundation of this reality. The central Freudian Lacanian insight can indeed explain a lot. And there are numerous examples demonstrating the central law role of the command of the law, the force of authority. Um, social psychology, uh, for example, can offer a lot of support to such an argument. Uh, I will give you just one example. The series of experiments directed by Stanley Milgram at Yale University between 1960 and 1963 and involving hundreds of volunteers are quite revealing in this respect. His aim, Milgram's aim, was to study to what extent, up to which point, and under which conditions, people were prepared to obey orders to punish another person by subjecting her, him, to increasingly painful levels of electrocution. Perhaps you are uh, familiar with this famous experiment. The results were described by Milgram and I quote here, as both surprising and dismaying. A substantial proportion have continued to the last shock in the generator. In fact, out of 40 uh, men in, which were involved in the, um, in the original experiment, 26 administered the highest dose of electricity available in the fake generator. This was then the chief finding of the study. The extreme willingness of adults to go to almost any length on the command of an authority. This is again a quote from Milgram. Under the pressure of such a command, sanctioned, of course, by the authority of knowledge, people are inclined to disavow their openly stated values and commit acts they themselves would previously deplore. As Milgram adds, many subjects will obey the experimenter 
the scientists that should say giving the commands, no matter how vehement the pleading of the person being shocked, no matter how painful the fake shocks seem to be, and no matter how much the victim pleads to be let out. Milgram's experiment presents obedience as a psychological mechanism that links individual action to political purpose, as a dispositional cement, as he puts it, that binds men to systems of authority. Now, this is not obviously the place to discuss at length uh, uh, Milgram's hypothesis and the various shortcomings. However, one has to take very seriously his conclusion that it is not the substance of the command, but the source in authority that is of decisive importance. Simply put, the symbolic command incarnated in the name of the Father and associated with our insertion into the universe of language uh, that constructs uh, the social order has a structural and structuring role for the subject. It provides the ontological nexus within which the subject learns to interact with its social environment, the symbolic preconditions of subjection and obedience. It cannot explain, however, why some commands produce obedient behavior and some others are ignored. It cannot account for the occurrence of disobedience and for instances of resistance. In fact, if we were to stay uh, at this level, it would be impossible to account both for the failure of certain commands and for the complex extra-symbolic means through which the organized other, the big other, supports and or attempts to reinstitute its authority whenever this is threatened. Here the Lacanian answer is simple. On the one hand, the real, that is to say, what resists representation, the part of ourselves sacrificed upon entering the social world of language, our lost enjoyment, exceeds the subject, the social subject. And the lack this inscribes within subjective identity is what stimulates desire. This is a dialectic between lack and desire, central in Lacanian theory. On the other hand, the real also exceeds the big other, socio-symbolic reality, the institutional framework of society. And the lack this inscribes in the other explains the ultimate failure of fully determining subjectivity. It is this second failure, the lack in the other, that makes resistance possible, at least in principle. It is in the traumatic fact that the big other, the social order, cannot fully determine the subject that the space for freedom starts to emerge. But of course this is a freedom that the subject has learned to fear. As Judith Butler has formulated it, this predicament of the subject is usually resolved with the adoption of the following stance. I would rather exist in subordination than not exist. Both the other, the big other, and the subject prefer to repress or disavow, to defer this realization of the lack in the other. But in order to attempt that in a persuasive manner, the symbolic command is not enough. Something more positive is needed, given the fact that the lack marking subject and other 
is a lack of enjoyment, a lack of jouissance. This is exactly what fantasy attempts to offer. To make it even more clear, the imposition of the law involves a sacrifice of the excessive, unregulated enjoyment of the infant, and the lack this inscribes in the subject's social identity creates the desire for recapturing this lost, impossible enjoyment, a desire guided by fantasy. Thus, focusing on the symbolic aspects of identity, although, of course, a necessary step, is not sufficient in order to reach a rigorous understanding of the drive behind identification acts to explain why certain identifications prove to be more forceful and alluring than others and to realize why none can be totally successful. Let me recapitulate this argument so far. Our dependence on the organized other is not reproduced merely at the level of knowledge and conscious consent or coercion. What is much more important is the formal symbolic structuring of power relations. Most crucially, the reproduction of this formal structure relies on a libidinal affective support that binds subjects to the conditions of their symbolic subordination through fantasy and the administration of enjoyment. What makes the lack in the other invisible, in inverted commas, and thus sustains the credibility of the organized other, is a phantasmatic dialectic manipulating our relation to a lost, impossible enjoyment. It is impossible to unblock and displace identifications and passionate attachments without paying attention to this important dimension. The discussion is now entering a delicate phase because we have started sketching the different levels at which identification matters. And we have already seen that any analysis that purports to capture the complex relation between subject and structure cannot remain at the level of signification, although the role of the symbolic command remains extremely important. Here, contrary to what is widely believed, Lacan does not limit his insights within the level of representation and signification. Indeed, one needs to stress the productivity of the Lacanian distinction between the subject of the signifier on the one hand and the subject of enjoyment, the subject of jouissance on the other in addressing this particular question. To refer, to give you briefly one example, psychoanalysis alerts us to the fact that attachment to the nation, national identification, cannot be reduced to rational self-interested motivations, economic conditions, institutional dynamics, and so on and so forth. As important as all this may be, the play of identification should be at the heart of any effort to study group actions and human agency in nationalist movements. However, highlighting the discursive semiotic aspect of identification and of national identification uh, is also not enough. No matter how much, why, why is it not enough? Because no matter how much national identification is deconstructed, there is still something that resists. And this is also why shifting such attachments is so difficult. Above all else, 
the ecumenical appeal of discourses like nationalism rests on their ability to mobilize human desire for identity and to promise an encounter with national enjoyment. The study of nationalism should therefore emphasize <coughs> uh, the study of nationalism should therefore emphasize the workings of the process of identification and the way uh, dialectics of jouissance, dialectics of enjoyment are played out in different national contexts. Undoubtedly, the nation is a symbolic construction internalized through processes of socialization, but what gives imaginary consistency to this construction of the nation is a fantasy promising our encounter with the fullness of enjoyment supposedly located at the roots of national history, an enjoyment denied to us by the evil action of the enemy figure. This is what uh, Slavoj Žižek has described as a castrating fantasy staging the theft of enjoyment. These fantasies often permeate official channels and narratives, education, national myths, ritualized practices, uh, and so on and so forth. However, such imaginarized promises acquire the gloss of the real, enhancing their depth and their salience through the partial enjoyment obtained from mostly unofficial and often secretive, obscene practices, an enjoyment reproduced through characteristic everyday rituals, customs, culinary preferences, and traditions. So, national identification, uh, in this view, is sustained through a fantasmatic promise informing uh, 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 symbolic narratives, a promise to bring back our lost enjoyment, the lost glory of the nation, in this case. To remain appealing, such a promise needs the help of moments of partial enjoyment. The victory in a very important football match of the national team, and so on and so forth. These could be examples. And when these are also found wanting, we can only resort to a fantasy of the theft of enjoyment. What does this fantasy uh, uh, tell us? That we cannot get our enjoyment back, not because it is impossible or inaccessible, but because somebody else has stole it from us. The national enemy, the Jews, the immigrants, and so on and so forth. As we have seen up to now, a plurality of distinct but interimplicated levels is always involved in a successful identification. The symbolic call emanated from the side of the law Instituting social reality, the first level, relies on a second level consisting of a fantasmatic narrative dealing with the lack of enjoyment the symbolic command entails. And this in its turn presupposes practices of partial enjoyment. Now, let us go one step further, because up to now, I mean, this is the rather banal part uh, of the lecture. We already knew most of that uh, since uh, Freud published uh, Mass Psychology, basically. Um, now, the issue is what are the precise forms, the synergy between the various levels involved in this process can take? In particular, how can we account 
for the far from uncommon fact that symbiosis can appear as antithesis and can even metamorphose into transgression and or resistance. My, my main uh, hypothesis here is that apart from the simple case of straightforward synergy between the different dimensions on which identifications operate, this system can often take the extremely sophisticated form of complex form-force articulations which then undergo a certain process of distribution or splitting, to use a very well-known Kleinian category, along a set of different axes, public-private, seen-obscene, visible-invisible, explicit-implicit, and so on and so forth. This unevenly structured and invested distribution very often conceals the symbiotic relation between the two or more poles involved in the process. The emergence, that is to say, of an oppositional polarity camouflages, disavows a synergy reproducing the hegemonic structure, the hegemonic order. Let me give you an example. The reproduction of workplace identifications offers a revealing uh, 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 example in this respect. Here one can again notice the play between symbolic obligation, fantasy, and enjoyment, which often appear as seemingly unconnected or even antithetical dimensions, while in effect they symbiotically sustain relations of power and attachment to authority. Thus, the established distinction between formal and informal organization can be seen under a new light. A very good illustration is offered by Alessia Contou and Hugh Wilmot in a relatively recent paper in which they offer a challenging interpretation of the complexity of the work practices of Xerox technicians. Xerox, the copy, uh, photocopying uh, machines uh, company. What one observes here is the apparent antagonism between the symbolic command emanating from the management, a call for strict compliance with instructions included in the manuals of the company, and the actual unrecognized and undervalued practice of technicians which often favors improvisation and creative experimentation which is not sanctioned by bureaucratic procedure. What we seem to have here is a form of transgression of the Xerox law, of the symbolic, by technicians who enjoy and take pride in enacting a different course of doing the job. Sometimes such ironic or, or even cynical transgressive acts are presented as effective forms of resistance. For example, Michel de Certeau um, argues something along the lines, if I read him correctly. Now, what is the catch here? It may at first sound as insanely counterintuitive, but what if the transgression of an ideal serves to reinforce the ideal's capacity to secure compliance and obedience? This is because, first of all, this is a problematic which has been very much developed by my colleague at the University of Essex, Jason Glinos. And his, his argument is that this is because this transgression and the failure to meet a publicly affirmed ideal can serve as a source of enjoyment. 
phantasmatically structured enjoyment thus alerts us to the politically salient idea that oftentimes it may be more productive to consider the possibility that concrete ideals may be sustained rather than subverted by their transgression. And this is exactly what happens in Xerox. Although apparently transgressive, the, this misbehavior of Xerox technicians ultimately functions in a conservative way that benefits the corporation. I'm quoting from the paper by Contu and Wilmot. By improvising and applying fixes and shortcuts, the technicians minimize the expense of machine repairs and replacements and reduce customer frustration associated with delays in restoring machine use. End of quote. Thus, partial deviance from the publicly sanctioned law, a deviance limited within the confines of, the, of, the, of this closed community of the technicians, is indeed functional for the goal of cost-effectiveness, customer satisfaction, and ultimately corporate profitability. This should not cause surprise, especially given the idea that some forms of transgression can be a preserving force, uh, is not something entirely new within management studies, and especially within critical management studies. At any rate, it makes absolute sense from the point of view of a problematic of self-transgression, which, with its focus on enjoyment and fantasy, can illuminate this paradox. The ideal and the enjoyment procured through transgression are co-constitutive. One sustains the other. On the one hand, the symbolic ideal forms the background for the transgressive practice, on the other, this practice, through the enjoyment it procures, may serve to bolster, to bolster the ideal and the objectives, these ideal structures. Every effective hegemony, I think, needs to operate on all these levels, co-opting opposition and neutralizing its radical potential and undergoing in the process gradual shifts that in most cases however, do not threaten the reproduction of hierarchical order, the basic parameters of domination. This ultimately symbiotic uh, engagement between uh, publicly affirmed ideals and secret transgression, between what happens off stage and what is on display in their mutual co-constitution, it's observable in a variety of sociopolitical settings from national identification to workplace practices has been extremely well documented uh, uh, also by, uh, by social anthropologists, especially through the problematic of what they call cultural intimacy. Uh, according to this extremely uh, challenging body of work, the production of public identity seems to create of necessity a special terrain of things, relations, and activities that cannot themselves be public, but are essential aspects of whatever reality and value public things uh, might possess. This is a, co a quote from uh, Shryuk, who has edited a book on this uh, question of cultural intimacy. Uh, it is this terrain that has been described by the Harvard anthropologist uh, Michael Hertzfeld 
as the terrain of cultural intimacy. If we go back to our example of the nation, uh, Herzfeld's analysis points to the operation of distinct logics in the constitution and reproduction of national identity. On the one hand, we have a dimension of self-construction of often elaborate ideologies of self-glorification. And on the other, the popular support these are able to enjoy precisely because they can carry a far greater load of dirty secrets. This is a quote from Herzfeld. Dirty secrets grounded in everyday experience. Cultural intimacy, Herzfeld points out, is always this space of dirty linen. And he captures very well this dialectic between the formal narrative of national identity and its unver, its other side, a dimension of spirited personal social poetics that involve fantasies of transgression and practices procuring partial enjoyment. Like this anthropological tradition, Lacan-inspired social and political analysis moves beyond the limits of top-down mainstream academic approaches, orienting its research into accounting in detail for the disavowed dimension implicated in identification and social reproduction. That of cultural intimacy as the other scene, to use a Freudian expression, where administrations of enjoyment are formulated, fantasized, and partially enacted. Likewise, both these two intellectual traditions, psychoanalysis and social anthropology, register the importance of the aforementioned problematic of self-transgression. As Herzfeld points out, the adherence to static cultural ideals has a surprising consequence. It permits and perhaps even encourages the day-to-day -day subversion of norms. In other words, norms are both perpetuated and reworked through the deformation of social conventions in everyday interaction. Wasn't this also the lesson from the Xerox example? Indeed, the, the public law, the space of the officially sanctioned ideals, is revealed as incomplete and paradoxically receives support from a clandestine supplement of self-transgression. The lack in the other, in other words, demands a fantasy support, ultimately an indirect anchoring in the partial jouissance of the body. Now, we have, we have seen up to now how Lacanian theory illuminates the dialectic between subject and organized other by focusing on both the symbolic level, the formal presuppositions of authority, the irresistibility, if you want, of the other's command, and the level of affect and jouissance, the phantasmatic administration of real enjoyment and its lack, which through a series of complex articulations and oppositional distributions, sustains the credibility of the lacking other through the dynamics of self-transgression and cultural intimacy. This orientation, however, needs to encounter more consistently, uh, I think, the, uh, the field of historical experience. There are many good reasons for that, both theoretical and strategic. 
On the one hand, it is important to move beyond the, this obsolete stereotype of psychoanalytic interpretation as an ahistorical one, as one trapping us within a suffocating, all-encompassing or eternal structure. In fact, it is uh, precisely uh, Lacan's incomplete structure, the lacking other, that demands a consistent engagement with history. And I will give you a quote, a very interesting quote from Lacan. He says, you know the nonsense they've come up with now. There is structure and there is history. The people they've put in the structure category, which includes me, it wasn't me who put me there, they put me there just like that. Supposedly spit on history. That's absurd. There can obviously be no structure without reference to history. On the other, it is obviously impossible to analyze and effectively critique capitalist hegemony without closely following, uh, without closely following its often revolutionary and unexpected mutations, without locating the shifting distributions of form and force securing its reproduction within the broader anthropological, historical, and moral picture. Indeed, every age, every historical conjuncture, every sociopolitical order we encounter will institute their own blend of coercion, symbolic authority, as well as phantasmatic and self-transgressive jouissance. Here, historical contextualization is able to provide very fruitful intuitions, and thus I will, I will be devoting the second half of this presentation to this particular enterprise. And my, my, my starting point will be a book by uh, Todd McGowan, uh, a recent study entitled The End of Dissatisfaction, question mark, Jacques Lacan and the Emerging Society of Enjoyment. Now, this book provides a convenient starting point uh, for such an exploration. Uh, McGowan begins by registering the enjoyment explosion surrounding us in consumer society and develops the hypothesis that it marks a significant shift in the structure of the social bond in social organization. In particular, he speaks of a passage from a society of prohibition to a society of commanded enjoyment from prohibition to commanded enjoyment. While more traditional forms of social organization required subjects to renounce their private enjoyment in the name of social duty, today the only duty seems to consist in enjoying oneself as much as possible. This is McGowan's first observation. This is the call that is addressed to us from all sides the media, advertisements, even our own friends. We, are, we, we feel guilty when we don't enjoy ourselves enough. Societies of prohibition, it says, were founded on an idealization of sacrifice, of sacrificing enjoyment for the sake of social duty. In our societies of command enjoyment, the private enjoyment that threatened the stability of these more traditional societies has become itself a stabilizing force and even acquires the status of a duty. In McGowan's schema, this emergent society of command enjoyment is not typical of capitalism in general. It characterizes in particular late capitalism. 
Why? Because in its initial phases, with its reliance on work ethic and delayed gratification, capitalism sustained its own form of prohibition. According to this perspective, the classical bourgeois attitude and bourgeois political economy was initially based on postponement, the deferral of jouissance, patient retention with a view to the supplementary enjoyment that is calculated, accumulate in order to accumulate, produce in order to produce. This is a quote from Jean-Joseph Gou's uh, uh, book on uh, symbolic economies. This is the first spirit of capitalism. I mean that in a, Weber, in, in a Weberian sense, where spirit implies a particular form of obligation, a distinct ethical mode, a type of categorical imperative, if you will, associated with a sense of professional duty based on rational asceticism, a gradually secularized version of Protestant asceticism, and presupposing the tabooing of enjoyment of conspicuous consumption and luxury. One of the nodal points of this framework of sacrifice is, of course, saving. Now, this simple model incorporating the insight of sociology classics like Max Weber, uh, Lacanians like McGowan, even postmoderns like Baudrillard would uh, agree on that, can be extremely helpful, I think. But it may also be in need of some revision able to produce a more nuanced account alert to the paradoxes of mutual engagement, the ones we have just been described. In fact, the whole problematic I'm trying to put forward here justifies a problematization of this model of a clear-cut differentiation and periodization between prohibition, asceticism on the one hand, and enjoyment, luxury on the other. Such a problematization can and should proceed on both the synchronic and the diachronic levels. On the one hand, at the synchronic level, the consumerist call to enjoy may be less liberating than it seems. In that sense, what we are dealing with, instead of a strict antithesis or opposition between restraining asceticism and liberating enjoyment, is articulations of ethics, morality, and enjoyment distributed along two seemingly antithetical but in effect mutually reinforcing axes comprising one single functional structure. On the other, at the diachronic level, the idea of a straightforward linear movement from prohibition to enjoyment, from the old to the new spirit of capitalism, also needs to be re-examined. And here, recent historical research uh, of consumption patterns can be extremely revealing. But let's take one step uh, at a time and see how far we'll have time to proceed on this discussion. As far, first of all, as far as synchronic differentiation is concerned, what a careful comparison between the two spirits reveals is that with all the differences, they do not signify a break of cosmological proportions. As we have seen from a, uh, from a psychoanalytic point of view, the administration of enjoyment and the structuration of desire are always implicated in the institution of the social bond. Every society has to come to terms 
with the impossibility of attaining jouissance as fullness, it is only the fantasies produced and circulated to mask or at least to, to domesticate or displace this trauma that can vary. And in fact, they do vary immensely. Prohibition and commanded enjoyment are two distinct such strategies designed to institute the social bond and legitimize authority, social hierarchy and power in different ways. Nevertheless, in both these two cases, certain things remain unchanged. What remains the same is, first of all, the impossibility of realizing the fantasy. This is very much highlighted by McGowan. He says, the fundamental thing to recognize about the society of enjoyment is that in it, the pursuit of enjoyment has misfired. The society of enjoyment has not provided the enjoyment that it promises. But if this is the case, then the command to enjoy is only revealed as a more nuanced form of prohibition. It continues with other means the traditional function of symbolic law and power. Greater autonomy associated with the new spirit of capitalism conceals more constraints, as Boltanski and Chapello have put it in their book The New Spirit of Capitalism. In societies of command enjoyment, enjoyment makes sense predominantly as a duty. Duty is transformed into a duty to enjoy, which is precisely the commandment of the superego. The seemingly innocent and benevolent call to enjoy, as in Enjoy Coca-Cola, for example, embodies the violent dimension of an irresistible commandment. Equine Echoing the astute reference to forced enjoyment by Paul Lafargue, Marx's son-in-law, in his extremely perceptive and uh, provocative book, The Right to be Lazy, first published as a series of articles in 1880, Lacan was perhaps the first to elaborate on the importance of this paradoxical hybrid when he linked the command enjoy with the superego. The superego is the imperative of jouissance, enjoy, says Lacan. He was indeed one of the first to detect in this innocent call the unmistakable mark of power and authority. Thus, Lacan is offering a revealing insight on what has been described as the consuming paradox. While consumerism seems to broaden our opportunities, choices and experiences as individuals, it also directs us towards predetermined channels of behavior and thus it seems to be as disabling as it is enabling. The desire stimulated and imposed by advertising discourse is in this sense the desire of the big other par excellence. Already in 1968, Baudrillard had captured this moral dynamics of an obligation to buy, as he calls it, and recent consumption research is becoming increasingly more alert to this forced choice of consumerism. And this was also something that the Frankfurt School had already uh, sensed. In our consumer societies, societies of enforced or commanded enjoyment, authority and symbolic power are as operative as in societies of prohibition. 
the enforced happiness and enjoyment is the equivalent of the traditional imperatives to work and produce. In that sense, the structure of obedience and subjection discussed in the first part of my talk is still relevant here. The command to enjoy is nothing but an advanced, much more nuanced, and much more difficult to resist form of power. It is more effective than the traditional model, not because it is less constraining or less binding, but because its violent exclusionary aspect is masked by its fantasmatic vow to enhance enjoyment, by its productive enabling facade. It does not oppose and prohibit, but openly attempts to, emb to embrace and appropriate the subject of enjoyment. I disagree with many, uh, with him on, on many issues, but uh, I have been reading Slavoj Žižek's uh, last book, uh, First as Tragedy, Then as Fast, and he has an amazing example of that um, from, uh, from his experience in a New York hotel where he found a sign saying the following. That was inside his room. Dear guest, to guarantee that you will fully enjoy your stay with us, this hotel is totally smoke-free. For any infringement of this regulation, you will be charged $200. And, 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 and Slavoj uh, uh, comments on that. The beauty of this formulation, taken literally, is that you are to be punished for refusing to fully enjoy your stay. So this is a good example of what I'm talking about. Uh, in general, not only is this novel uh, articulation of power and enjoyment hard to recognize and to thematize, it is even more difficult to delegitimize in practice, to disinvest consumption acts and disidentify with consumerism. However, without such a disinvestment, a disinvestment and the cultivation of alternative uh, administrations of jouissance, no real change can be effected. Uh, clearly then, a, a, a psychoanalytic perspective is bound to introduce a more nuanced picture on, on this differentiation between the different spirits of capitalism. A similar conclusion follows from a more, more careful examination of periodization. As we have seen, most analysts locate the shift from the first to the second spirit of capitalism around the middle of the 20th century. According to most accounts, it is the second half of the 20th century, after the 50s, let's say, that Puritanism gives place to enjoyment. Recent research, however, has revealed that whatever forces were working to challenge the Protestant ethic, they were hardly recent, but could be found to have a pedigree which extends back to a time well before the 20th century. This is a phrase from a book by Colin Campbell. Indeed, signs of erosion of the first spirit of capitalism started to become visible and or conscious well before that. Writing in 1880, Lafargue describes vividly how mass production prepared the ground for the development of a consumer culture unified around the command to enjoy and I will quote from the right to be lazy. 
in the face of the in the face of this double folly of workers killing themselves with overproduction and vegetating in abstinence, the big problem of capitalist production isn't finding producers and increasing their force, but finding consumers, exciting their appetites and creating artificial needs. It could even be argued that the first wave of hedonism and consumerism affected the middle ranks of English society by the second half of the 18th century. Drawing on and renewing a neglected tradition, going back to the work of uh, Werner Zombart, uh, a contemporary of Max Weber, who wrote uh, some very important books, including uh, The Bourgeois and uh, Luxury and Capitalism. Drawing on his work, on Zombart's work, recent historical research has documented an unparalleled product and consumer revolution that took place in 18th century Britain. This revolution involved the fascination with new consumer goods now embraced by middling class extending professionals, merchants, industrialists to ordinary tradespeople and artisans. Far from being the invention of the post-Cold War era, as Maxim Berg highlights, a global consumer society is thus revealed as the very foundation of the industrial world. In fact, it would be a mistake to associate the measures of enforced enjoyment with modernity itself. Why? Because this is clearly not the first time in history that such an order of command enjoyment was instituted. It is in fact possible to trace the genealogy of this administration of enjoyment of such an authority phantasmatic structure back to what is often called court society. A few centuries before the sentimentation of the bourgeois ascetic ideal, European aristocracy, the feudal ruling class, asserted itself through its exemption from industrial occupation and a rejection of any purposive, rational orientation and consumption, that is to say, through its devotion to leisure and the unproductive and conspicuous consumption of goods and luxuries. However, one should not mistake the wealth of members of this class with a state of per perfect happiness free from all social constraint. On the contrary, as Norbert Elias has masterfully shown, a very powerful ethics of obligation is operating here. And I will quote from, from Elias. Elias says, What appears as extravagance from the standpoint of the bourgeois economic ethic is in reality the expression of the seniorial ethos of rank. It is not freely chosen. Indeed, expenditure on prestige and display, conspicuous consumption, is for the upper classes a necessity which they cannot avoid. In the works of a contemporary, quoted by Zombart, luxury is to them as much an affliction as poverty is to the poor. It is even more important to note that although such behavior was anathema to dominant bourgeois ethics, the pursuit of luxury never receded from the horizon. It remained a disavowed, postponed fantasy that influenced considerably the development of capitalism, if not in theory, then certainly in practice. 
certainly the capitalist ascetic ethic channels surplus into accumulation and industrial growth through a critique of luxury. But is this the full story? What if the relation between commanded enjoyment and bourgeois asceticism was not one of substitution or succession one after the other, but one of co-constitution and mutual engagement? In his Luxury and Capitalism, Werner Zombard goes so far as to argue that luxury gave birth to capitalism and that increase in the consumption of luxury goods has been the deciding factor in capitalist development. Zombard's schema reveals thus the disavowed genealogy of the late capitalist ethos of commanded enjoyment. It emerges with court society and passes gradually to parts of the bourgeoisie through the amalgamation of noble ancestry and bourgeois money. The luxury prevailing at the courts, Zombard argues, spread gradually to all the circles that were in any way connected to the court or saw fulfillment of their ambitions identified with court life. This description, we may safely state, applies to the entire moneyed class which was gripped with the same fondness for luxury as the court circles, end of quote. And this, uh, of course, this stress on the importance of luxury is corroborated by more recent accounts by the work of Colin Campbell, Maxine Berg, Keith Thomas, and other historians of this period. So if this is the case, then we may have to rethink the relation between the ethics of asceticism and prohibition on the one hand and the ethics of enjoyment, of uh, commanded enjoyment on the other. This is the task that Colin Campbell says to himself in, the romant- in, his, in a book entitled the romantic ethic and the spirit of modern consumerism. Uh, of course, I don't have the time now to go into much detail, uh, but what remains truly fascinating in Campbell's account is that even though the Berian rational asceticism may have hegemonized for a certain period uh, all these moral debates, the field of the official ideal, that is to say, this has always proceeded in coexistence, if not in a paradoxical symbiosis with its supposed opposite, with what was assumed to transgress it. Even in Weber, the Protestant ethic is presented as an ideal type, and as Campbell points out, it is a fundamental mistake to confuse such a cultural ideal type with a total pattern of behavior which might be identified as characterizing the conduct of individuals or social groups and hence to confuse an ethic with a type of personality or the behavior typical of a given social position. In theory, Campbell concludes, individuals cannot conform to two ethics. In practice, it may not be so difficult. In fact, Campbell's reference to the symbiotic relationship between the two opposed ethical orientations introduces a similar problematic to that of mutual engagement and self-transgression introduced earlier in my talk. A problematic of simultaneous contrast, even contradiction, but also, and most crucially, of interdependence. These twin cultures, adds Campbell, ensured the continued performance of those contrasts contrasted but interdependent forms 
of behavior essential to the perpetuation of industrial societies, matching consumption with production, play with work, and I would add official ideal with self-transgression. A distribution of form force in which symbolic authority is dominant under the form of ascetic prohibition with another distribution in which phantasmatic enjoyment is dominant under, under the form of a call to enjoy. As we learn again from Paul Lafargue, almost from the beginning of bourgeois society, next to the ascetic bourgeois is the bourgeois who has delivered himself, and I quote, to frenetic luxury, exotic indigestion, and syphilitic debauch. Very soon after acquiring its dominant status, again quote from Lafargue, the capitalist class found itself condemned to laziness and forced happiness, to unproductiveness and overconsumption. This also gives him the opportunity to, to say the following, which is very nice. Once convinced that instead of wishing them harm, we want to free them from the work of overconsumption and waste that they've been overburdened since birth, the capitalists and stockholders will be first to rally to the popular party. Such mutual engagement, such cultural tango, has characterized, I think, modern societies from their birth and appears essential to their continued existence. This cultural tango also affected, almost from the beginning, the lower classes. Gradually, the new goods had also become, at least, at least in principle, accessible even to laborers, especially, especially after the, uh, the lifting of uh, sumptuary laws. Uh, by the middle of the 19th century, the, the antagonism, the splitting between the two spirits and its wider social and political implications, not only for the bourgeoisie, but also for the lower popular strata, was becoming visible to everybody both synchronically and diachronically, different ways of controlling, regulating, demand, desire, and social hierarchy and rank were employed, ranging from the prohibition of sumptuary laws and ascetic morality to the indirect control implicit in the call to enjoy. Although the post-war period has indeed signaled an unprecedented hegemonization of social life by consumerism, and the ethics of enforced enjoyment, this oscillation never ceased. On the one hand, we have witnessed, especially during the last few decades, a cataclysmic diffusion of luxury items. As we read in a case study involving uh, one such item, that's to say oriental carpets, and I quote from Spooner, like other objects of conspicuous consumption, oriental carpets first became luxury furnishings for the elite and have now gone the way of so many luxuries in recent times and become available throughout the middle class. In fact, today, even IKEA sells original handmade oriental carpets. On the other hand, however, the current economic crisis has turned the center of gravity back to the value of prohibition and sacrifice. After, it, it, it has been two or three decades uh, that we haven't seen uh, the word saving or the, uh, the day of saving. You know, there's, a, there's, a, there's an annual day of saving which uh, we had to celebrate this year 
after 20-30 years. Uh, when I, to give you another example, when I, when I started putting together these ideas, my newspaper reported the theme of a public discussion organized in the framework of a, of a local uh, book fair in Greece, and the title was Youth and Books from Obligation to Enjoyment, which is indicative of the shift in strategies of socialization. When I was finishing, mainstream news websites were hosting articles with titles such as, and I quote, Recession, How to Talk to Your Kids, in which experts provide advice to parents on how to start saying no to their children, something indicative, I think, of the reverse trend. And I quote from one of these articles, I think it's from CBS, from the CBS website. It isn't always in the best interest to give them everything they want, even if you could, because I think they need to learn that waiting for something, delaying gratification, sacrificing, those are important aspects of character development. End of quote. In my view, the logic of mutual engagement between authority and enjoyment and its recasting of, the, of, the, of this whole discussion on the spirits of capitalism offers the broad framework within which we should also interpret the current crisis of capitalism at the ethico-political level. The crisis results from particular rhythms or tunes this cultural tango has been following and it will only be resolved through a new crystallization of such relations of mutual engagement. Now, which exact direction these crystallizations will acquire is perhaps the foremost political challenge of our age. Thank you very much. Janis, thank you very much. It was a great talk. Um, are there any questions? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. You've certainly given me uh, a different way of thinking about the recession, the enjoyment of the bankers, and the call for the regulation of the bankers. Um, my question really, and I think the last point you started to make is the most important thing for me here is, what does your analysis of authority and enjoyment tell us about the spirit of anti-capitalism? Because the overthrow of this rotten system is the most important question facing us all at the moment. So I'd like to hear whether you've got any ideas about how mutual engagement might guide or direct or help anti-capitalist or socialist forces think about alternative ways of uh, living together. Let's take two or three questions at a, at a time. There's a, a question over here. And one at the back afterwards. Thank you for that uh, really interesting talk. I thought it was really, um, really enlightening. Um, my question is, <clears throat> when you're talking about enjoyment, um, jouissance, there, in, as I understand Lacan, there are various different nuances within jouissance. And it struck me that a lot of the time when you're talking about 
en enjoyment within the capitalist system, um, you know, the enjoyment of luxury goods and all the rest of it, that's actually um, what Lacan would call phallic jouissance, something that Zizek has described as fundamentally stupid. Um, and I was wondering if you've got any idea, any thoughts on the place of transgressive jouissance in capitalism? Oh, sorry, man. Uh, no, interesting talk, Yanis. Uh, I, I had a question, though. If I wonder if your analysis somewhat still keeps the very binaries you're kind of questioning. I mean, it seemed like by the very end you were actually getting towards something more radical than your initial assumptions, which is that actually the ideal is transgressive, right? It's the purity of the fantasy, right, that becomes resistance. Let us take a show like The Office, for instance, right? Here you have the boss who is the command, is the authority. And you have the resistance of the more responsible capitalism. Or you have in the recent Obama, at the very moment when it was very clear that American democracy was showing its absurdities, you had this resistance of we actually represent the pure democracy. So I was wondering if maybe you could actually take your thing further to actually say that fantasy is the transgressive. The ideal is strongest when it's the transgressive when it's playing on the real, when it is the resistance, not the other way around. I mean, just to completely get away from the binaries in the first place. Um, I want to as well. In the Lacanian left, you, you lament the fact that there's not a greater rallying point of the left, that there's not a, a more overt, passionate, um, unifying leftist identity in Europe. And linking to some of the questions that have already been asked, it seems to me that most of the time um, in the Kenyan theory, jouissance is by definition excessive, by definition transgressive, and as you've shown, it's typically supporting, reinforcing of the underside of a given moral discourse. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, jouissance always seems to be the bad jouissance. How do you get to the kind of leftist revolutionary jouissance? And so that's the one question. And, and, and the question that relates to that is, do you buy what seems to be Badiou's answer to this, the notion of revolutionary love? With regards to love, I stick to the old Lacanian idea that love is uh, to give something you do not possess to somebody who doesn't need it. Uh, but, uh, okay, let's see what we can do. First of all, the, let's, let me start from the first question. Uh, I think you are right. There's, there's a problem here because the, the standard critique that all we have to do is introduce some sort of prohibition that will castrate, let's say, the uh, enjoyment of the bankers and so on and so forth, uh, is not really a progressive solution in the sense that, as I have tried to show, both, both the call to enjoy and this idea of prohibition, sacrifice, limits, and so on and so forth, can be part of the same system. So one reinforces the other. And this is actually, I think, what we are seeing now. We are seeing major capitalist powers which are in favor of continuing the same uh, play of enjoy, uh, continue supporting the uh, call to enjoy, and other powers introducing more measures prohibiting this enjoyment. 
Uh, and I think it's very important to see how one reinforces the other. Uh, so the question is, what else can be done? And this uh, takes me to the other questions, uh, actually, um, which somehow I think they are all uh, they are all connected. Uh, because uh, I think you're absolutely right. What I'm talking about is phallic jouissance. Is this jouissance of fullness, which is promised, uh, and so on and so forth. And of course, from a Lacanian perspective, and this is what I'm trying to do in the Lacanian left, I'm trying to uh, to use to utilize this idea that Lacan had of another jouissance, of a different form of jouissance, which is a jouissance and enjoyment of the non-all, or of the not-all, if you want. Uh, a jouissance of partiality, a jouissance of lack, if you want. Uh, and this is what he associates with feminine jouissance. Uh, so presumably, a solution might be charted along the lines of, cult of, of, of ethically cultivating this jouissance of the not all, which in a certain sense escapes the short circuit between fullness and prohibition. Uh, now, to go to uh, Pete's and Derek's uh, question, uh, of course the, 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 the problem is how can this be done? And it's both a practical problem because although fantasies never satisfy our desire, they teach us how to desire. So it is very difficult, as soon as desire and enjoyment is channeled into particular directions, to effect some sort of significant shift. It's very, very difficult. So what I'm trying to, uh, to stress is the uh, um, first necessary step is a process of mourning. We have to, to mourn this whole system and, uh, 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 and, 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 and uh, this fullness, which was not only promised by the uh, consumerist utopian discourse, it was also promised by uh, socialist or Marxist or communist ideals. And this, we have to move beyond that, I think, in, a, in what I call a post-utopian direction. Or maybe try to recast utopian discourse in a post-fantasmatic, post-phallic jouissance direction, if you want. Um, now, the, the, uh, the, the question again, uh, obviously that will be quite difficult, but uh, I don't think it is, uh, it is impossible. Uh, it is already happening, um, this uh, enjoyment of luck, this institutionalization of luck, putting forward luck as something that provides partial enjoyment and enjoyment of the not-all is happening around us. Even, even capitalism is trying to co-opt this idea. Um, but of course it's not, it's not certain. I mean, this is one of the, this is one of the uh, uh, criticisms that, uh, that Slavoj Zizek uh, is addressing to, uh, to my work. And uh, in, uh, in, um, in uh, his book, uh, in defense of lost causes, uh, he has this, um, there's a part in which he, he refers to uh, my work, and he says his solution is neither the phallic enjoyment of power nor the utopia of the incestuous full enjoyment. 
but a non-phallic, non-null partial enjoyment. Which is true. This is exactly what I'm trying to put forward. Uh, but of course, uh, Slavoj's question again is how? How can this be done? And he's, I, I, I think he's probably doubting the possibility of, uh, of doing that. Of, um, putting forward some sort of, um, appealing enjoyment of luck. An appealing enjoyment of luck. Uh, I think it is still worth pursuing this course. Uh, when I say that even capitalism is trying to uh, utilize this idea, for example, you have Muji, this, this Japanese uh, uh, chain uh, here in London, uh, which does not have any sign of the brand in the garments, for example. Uh, and actually Muji means no brand name, I think, if I'm correct. So you have this idea of luck, which is exactly the opposite from all, what all the other brands are doing, and branding in general tries to do. You have this lack of brand, which is elevated into the point of central identification, and that is supposed to produce some sort of enjoyment. So you see how, for a, for a, for a, for a, for a very big firm, this looks like a promising option. I can't see why Slavoj doesn't uh, really accept that. <laughs> Other questions? I'm an artist. Um, and I have, I guess, been foolish enough to benefit by the freedom that capitalism has uh, privileged me with. I haven't gotten caught up in buying all the trendy stuff, nor have I found myself needing to be politically correct, as I suspect a lot of people here find themselves to be. I'd like to know, you're talking about, and you're using a lot of French words. I don't speak that language. I'm quite interested in the way that, you know, there's a, a way of speaking that outsiders can't tip into. It's so unsimple, isn't it? I'd like to know in some concrete and precise terms what this, I mean, you did at one point suggest that Someone who was malnourished, starving, maybe dying of lack of medical aid and deep poverty, was having only the same kind of difficulty as somebody who was overflowing with wealth. I really find that so cynical. I'd like to know what, in real terms, and try and use English, um, you would actually see is this world that you'd like to see. I'm not saying capitalism is perfect. I think there are a hell of a lot of big problems with it. Uh, but as an artist, I find that the freedom is unprecedented in any other kind of system. As um, somebody said, I think, you know, democracy is the worst system except for all the others. I think that was Roosevelt. I can't remember. Churchill. Who was it? Whoever. Could you just be specific about what you see as a more beneficial alternative? Thanks. Um, ben? Um, first of all, thank you very much, Professor Stavrakakis, for your very interesting talk. Um, more of a comment than a question, I suppose. I um, wanted to suggest perhaps a further elaboration on um, the first part of your talk. Um, first of all, in relation to um, the role of the imaginary, which I think there's a, there's a, there's a tacit um, dependence on the imaginary in um, the formulation of the um, relation between the, the, 
the, um, the subject and the structure. I'm thinking in particular of um, a rather untrendy concept now, but suture and the, the kind of um, formulations that Jacques Alain Miller gives there. But um, what I really wanted to sort of suggest was um, in relation to your um, Xerox engineers and something that's come from um, two, two of the other questioners. Um, I kept thinking as you were talking of um, Roland Barthes' later work, um, his um, lectures to the Collège de France, and I apologise for mentioning France again to the lady at the front, um, <laughs> where he, um, he talks about um, sort of the, again, the idea of a transgressive fantasy and um, also um, the role of perversion. I think this is also in his um, autobiographical work as well. Um, and the idea that perversion is somehow can be sort of tra transgressive against the, um, the symbolic authority. And I wondered whether we could consider our Xerox engineers as perverts who um, are both, it, there's a sort of, there's a structure of fetishism there, as you say, bien, again, apologies, um, that I know very well that this isn't Xerox um, policy, but still I'm going to do it because it, it's effective. Um, and like the pervert, they're working in effect to uphold um, the symbolic other. And so um, I think I felt reading Bart that that was, some, that was rather a cul-de-sac that I don't think you can, through the imaginary, through fantasy, you can get out of this hegemonic structure. Um, again, not really, not really a question, just a, just a comment, just a sort of further elaboration on, on what you're saying. Thank you. Thanks. Shall I have a go? Yeah. What after capitalism? Um, there's a, as you may know, there's a, there's a very big discussion on that uh, currently in um, this area that we could call, I don't know, uh, radical political theory, political philosophy, uh, but you, Zizek, have been mentioned, uh, Nestor Laclos, Antal Mouf, uh, Balibar, Jacques Rancière, all these people. I think the, uh, one of the, one of the uh, issues which is central there, and this is a, an opposition which is being crystallized at the moment, is what is the direction to follow in order to chart some sort of alternative direction. And the option today seems to be between communism, we have a return of communism, a communist hypothesis, we had a big conference in London organized by Zizek with many of these people uh, talking uh, on that topic. So the, the, the option today seems to be between uh, communism and democracy. So, but you and Zizek, for example, would probably side with communism, uh, Laclau, Mouffe, uh, I don't know about Rancière, would probably side with democracy. Um, my, my personal position is in favor of democracy, precisely for the reasons mentioned earlier, because democracy, for example, if we take the definition by Claude Lefort, is an attempt to institutionalize luck. But it's not, it's not, only, it's, it's not only Lefort. If you go to the uh, to the play by, uh, by Skilus, uh, the Persians, um, where you have a definition of ancient Greek democracy, it takes place, there's a, there's a question and answer uh, uh, session in the play, where the uh, queen of um, Persia asks the chorus, so who is the, who is the master of these Athenians? And the chorus says, 
they don't seem to have an answer. They don't recognize anybody as a master. So there's, there's an emptiness in the place of the master in a certain sense. This institutionalization of lack is what I find most interesting. Now the question, the, 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 the problem is that for people who are, uh, who are used to recognize a master, to go after this fullness of enjoyment, this phallic jouissance, it, it, it becomes very difficult to identify with this lacking uh, 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 point, if you want. Um, and of course, this is in Claude Lefort's analysis the reason for the, 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 the totalitarianism of the 20th century. A, a promise of return to this quest for fullness that democracy, in a certain sense, is producing. Uh, my my uh, view is that we should uh, stick to that idea of democracy, radicalize democracy. I'm not talking about post-democracy, which is what we are basically having now. Uh, Jacques Rancière and Colin Crouch have coined this term post-democracy to describe the current situation of liberal democratic uh, regimes. Uh, I'm talking about a radicalization of democracy that would probably uh, 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 chart a way uh, of change avoiding a return to this idea, fantasmatic idea of fullness that seems to be lurking behind communism. Uh, on the other on the other hand, I think we should also be very careful here. Uh, we should not uh, exaggerate the role of capitalism. For example, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a whole trend in economics today that stresses the fact that, uh, I mean, it, even if you do a simple calculation of the time we spend within capitalist relations, commodity, uh, commodified relations, uh, you will realize that in, in uh, every society in our world, 30 to 50 percent of our activity is outside the capitalist system. Uh, things you do for your family, things you do for a friend, uh, uh, unpaid work that you do in the house, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, so we should not, and also we should not, uh, we should not uh, equate capitalism with the market. It's not the same thing. For example, if you go to somebody like um, to the Annal School, Fernand Brodel, uh, he makes he makes a very big distinction between uh, the market system and capital. And in fact, capitalism is an enemy of the market because it leads to monopoly conglomerates that, in actual fact, tend to uh, suppress antagonism. It's not a very simple uh, story, so we have to be very clear what exactly we're talking about, how we see that, and so on and so forth. Uh, now,
But why, why do you associate that uh, compassion with capitalism? Please. But you are free to do so in other forms of... Uh, it's not only capitalism that gives you the freedom to uh, donate uh, money to. Have, having said that, yeah. So you think that uh, having the right to be compassionate uh, is better than having a system of uh, a welfare system that provides for everybody and so on and so forth? Because maybe maybe a system that does not really need somebody to uh, to show this compassion, maybe this is better than because the need doesn't really wouldn't really arise. No, I'm, I'm mm. having having said that, there's a, there's in, in the same book uh, by Jusque, there's a whole analysis of this uh, particular type of capitalism that uh, combines uh, uh, compassion with the ruthless, if you want. Uh, business as usual approach. There's, there's a whole chapter here about that. Because it is a trend. You're absolutely right. We need to um, draw to a close. I don't know if you wanted to respond a little bit to the other question. Ah, what was the other question? Uh, it was about the imaginary and um, uh, and whether the Xerox technicians are perverts. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe. Uh, <laughs> I have to meet some of them. Um, yes, it is. It is. It could be a pervert structure. It could be a pervert structure. I think. I know very well that these rules are there, but on the other hand, I will stick to my improvisation and get away with it, and so on and so forth. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. And um, there's a, there's a very interesting debate about this issue, which uh, because sometimes such a strategy can affect very small changes in the system. For, for, uh, for example, uh, Michel Desertor, that I have uh, mentioned to you, uh, considers this strategy, he, he, he calls the strategy the art of the weak. Um, uh, and he, he, he seems to think that uh, order is, the, the, the forces of order are tricked by this art of the weak. Um, nevertheless, this, uh, uh, this, this art, you know, to slightly change, to create a space for your own, a space of your own within the general institutional framework, um, uh, uh, retains a parasitic status. So you cannot, re one cannot really expect something more, um, uh, widespread out of that. And this is why uh, both Castoriadis and Zizek and many others are very, are very critical, are very critical uh, of, that, uh, of, that, uh, of that approach. Um, but I, 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 I basically agree with you, yes, it, it, it could be a pervert, yeah.
Okay, I think we need to stop there. Um, one last big thank you for Yanis. Thank you for your thank time. Thank you very much.